through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We want thy way and thy way alone, and we ask you to speak to our hearts in this hour. Whatever the need that we have, wilt thou meet that need? There are those who listen in this hour who are ill, some in prison, some in cars driving along the road, some in the hustle and bustle of preparation for church service or for other things in life. We ask the old God that whatever the need in this hour, that thou should give us quietness of heart to listen. And we ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In this third study in Galatians, we continue in chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. Last week we learned that Paul received his gospel by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. And after a period of training in Arabia and of working in the back country district, he visited the church at Jerusalem where he met James, Peter, and John. And now in verse 9 of chapter 2, we read this. And when James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the heathen, and they to the circumcision. Now the 15th chapter of Acts gives the story behind this verse. James was the presiding officer in the church council. Peter and John were leading brethren. At first they seemed to be somewhat, SS. Now they seemed to be pillars, SP. This is be the equivalent of BB, LLD, PhD, and the other honors that come to men. And again I say I'm not decrying education. I have some of these degrees myself, but what they give me is the right to say to men that education is of relatively no importance in comparison with that which comes to us by the Holy Spirit. Places of human leadership mean nothing. Peter was no vicar of Christ. These men saw the truth of the gospel as stated by Paul, and they went along with his teachings. If they had done this earlier, there would have been no place for the Judaizers. In the Acts, Peter said, God made distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. James, Peter, and John had only to shake hands and congratulate Paul on his missionary statesmanship. In verse 10 we continue, Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I was also forward to do. It's almost a humorous note here. Paul was visiting headquarters, and he had just brought a glowing report of God's work among the Gentiles. Now we don't know who was in charge of the central treasury, but they asked Paul to see to it that the offerings should continue to be sent to headquarters. Now Paul did not reply that all the money was to be designated for spiritual uses. He understood the necessity for what might be called social service. Whenever the Holy Spirit is in control, there's a balance between correct doctrine and correct living. Everything is dependent upon grace alone, working in the heart through the Holy Spirit. Now it would appear that after the meeting, Paul asked Peter if he would like to travel a bit and see the gospel at work in the Gentile world. A missionary journey may transform the life of a true Christian. Peter decided to go. He had never been outside of Palestine except for the brief journey along the coast in the time of Jesus' ministry. What follows will be all the more startling after we recall an incident earlier in the life of Peter. In Acts 10, God ordered Peter to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. Peter argued stubbornly with God. 
But when Gentile messengers from Cornelius found Peter in the house of Simon the Tanner, Peter invited these Gentiles to spend the night. Now, there is nothing written in the Bible about the reaction of the Jewish host to Peter's act of desegregation. But it must not be forgotten that a Jewish tanner, whose shop smelled as tanneries always do, would have considered his house more defiled by the presence of Roman soldiers than by the scent from his tanning vat. And here, Peter acted as a believer should act, obeying God and giving no thought to possible offense to his host. But now in Antioch, many years later, we see another side of Peter. He had defended Gentile rights at the Council of Jerusalem. He had struck hands with Paul and given his approval to Paul's mission to the Gentiles. He was absolutely convinced of the doctrinal correctness of Paul's stand. But now watch him. I'm going to tell the story before I read the verses. Because we are so accustomed to the smooth cadences of the Bible that sometimes we fail to understand all that it tells us. Peter arrived with Paul in the home of Gentiles. He sat there in the parlor watching Gentile ways. He smelled food cooking and saw, let us say, a roast of pork on the table. So he had his first taste of pork. Not bad. Little by little, Peter put down his prejudices and began to live in all the liberty of a Gentile household. He was eating what was set before him and asking no questions for conscience' sake. Then there came a knock at the door. It was a committee from Jerusalem to investigate conditions among Gentile Christians. Peter left by the back door through the alley. He stopped at the drugstore to get some chlorophyll to take the odor of pork from his breath. And he returned by the front door to meet the committee. Oh, it's so nice for us Jews to greet you. We are glad to see you. Then Paul spoke up. Peter, I'm not going to let you get away with it. Now let's read this story as it is in the scripture and we shall see that I have set forth a true picture. For in verse 11 we read, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him. That's the chlorophyll. Insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Now this is not a pretty picture. Peter was acting the coward, afraid of the disciples who were his denominational superiors. But even more, he was compromising the truth of the gospel. Oh, if there had been only a compromise about food, Paul would not have said anything. There are fields in which Christians may differ, and the 14th of Romans shows us that diet is one of them. But here, without question, Peter did not fully understand the implications of what he did. Paul, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, saw that this was not merely an exhibition of Jewish snobbishness, or an uncouth fisherman's lack of courtesy, Peter was rejecting the gospel of grace. As a matter of fact, this incident is the stone which the rationalists of the last century, and especially Bauer in Germany, used to support their theory that Paul's teaching contradicted with Peter's and was therefore different from Christ, and that the gospel of grace is a colossal fabrication. 
Now, before we consider the tremendous dressing down which Peter received from Paul, let us note that Peter later acknowledged that Paul was right. In the second epistle of Peter, the great apostle wrote, So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to be understood, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Oh, thank you, Peter. I like you for that. It takes a great man to say, I was wrong, dead wrong. Paul was right. He says some things that are over my head, but his wisdom comes from God, and he is right. I'm glad that God put that in, that Peter confessed that he was ignorant, mistaken, and that he had to be corrected by Paul. Now, this passage in the second chapter of Galatians, which treats of the great rebuke which Paul handed Peter, is one of the important key passages of the Bible. Peter had actually denied the sufficiency of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the first time that Peter ever saw Christ? The miraculous draft of fishes had taken place, and Peter had fallen before Christ, crying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. At that time, he was a circumcised, Sabbath-keeping, sacrifice-bringing Israelite, and none of that was enough. As time went on, he learned that he could not trust in himself, and he had been restored by Christ. At Pentecost, and again in the house of Cornelius, he had preached salvation by grace through faith alone. But now... Under the pressure of the legalistic Jerusalem party, he segregates himself from those who have not been circumcised. It was as though he had said, the death of Christ is not enough after all. In effect, he was saying to every Gentile believer, hand back, I am holier than you are. You have only believed in Christ, but I have done something better. I have kept the law. Oh, there's nothing more hateful than this attitude when we understand what grace truly is. You will say that Peter would never have put his action into words. Neither would most present-day Christians put into words their belief that something besides the death of Christ is necessary to salvation. Yet many do so believe. The man who thinks that salvation can be lost after it has been possessed is in the same error as Peter. Is it any wonder that Paul so sternly rebuked Peter? And so in verse 14 we read, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles. Sometimes we talk about the Christian life as though it had to do only with ethics. But Bible combines doctrine and ethics as two things which are inseparable. In his epistle to Timothy, Paul states that murder and lying are contrary to sound doctrine. And here in our passage in Galatians, he states that legalism is contrary to sound living. Peter's compromise was sin. 
by adding legalism to Christ's all-sufficient death, Peter was not walking uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. And likewise in our day, in the 20th century, men who set up conditions for church membership, such as abstinence from certain forms of eating and drinking, or abstinence from certain amusements, are not walking uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. There have been many arguments among commentators as to how much of this chapter was spoken to Peter in the presence of the group at Antioch. I'm convinced, and I follow the majority of the commentators, both ancient and modern, that the rest of the second chapter is the summary of Paul's rebuke to Peter before the whole church. And let us look at it in that light. Paul first stated boldly what Peter had been doing. He was a Jew who had been living in full freedom as a Gentile and had abandoned the kosher rites of Judaism. Now, he hypocritically sought to give the Jerusalem committee the impression that he was a practicing legalist. And this dissimulation, this hypocrisy by Peter, must have been a stunning blow to those who had followed him, for it showed that he was capable of putting on an act, that he was in fact a hypocrite. A modern incident has some similarity to this. A certain Christian leader was very, very loud in his arguments against the movie. One evening at a board meeting, he was speaking most piously about some matters in connection with missionary work when he came out with a punchline from a well-advertised movie which was playing in the city. A fellow board member who did not have the same compunction picked up the line and said, Oh, I see that privately you go to the movie. The man was so flustered that he couldn't add a lie to his hypocrisy and was forced to admit it. Now, Peter's act, of course, was more serious than this, for Jewish legalism impugned the doctrine of justification, as we shall see. Paul joined himself to Peter and reminded him that although they were Israelites by birth and not sinners of the Gentiles, even they had been justified by Christ. Now we go on to verse 16 knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Yes, Peter knew very well that he had not been justified by the law of Moses, but Paul had to remind him of it. And this brings us to justification, which in one sense is the theme of the epistle to the Galatians, as well as of that to the Romans. After the doctrine of the sovereignty of God revealing himself in grace, perhaps the most wonderful truth of the Bible is that of justification by faith, apart from the works of the law. The inner meaning of justification in the original languages has to do with the standard by which people or things are tested. It is the ruler that shows that a line is straight. It is the plummet that shows that a wall is perpendicular. Justification has to do with the rightness or the righteousness of a man. A man cannot be righteous by what he does. He is by nature a sinner, a child of wrath. He has no rightness in him. But God put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. And on the ground of that atoning work, God declares righteous those who put their trust in the Savior. Justification is the act of God, whereby he declares ungodly men to be perfect, 
while they are still ungodly. And this because of Jesus Christ and his death. Oh, if you can remember and understand only one sentence out of all I say, let that be it. I'll repeat it. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares an ungodly man to be perfect while he is still ungodly. And this because of Jesus Christ and his death. Now the marginal translation of this text gives us more insight into this great truth. We read in the margins of the translations, both that of the King James and the Revised Standard Version, a man is not reckoned righteous by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even as we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be reckoned righteous by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be reckoned righteous. Now there's so much in this word that it has caused many theological difficulties. Some have called Paul's idea a paradox, others a tension. But certainly there is no tension in a man who can write that the fruit of the Spirit is peace, gentleness, and other quiet qualities. And there's no paradox here either. Paul was not teaching merely that God looks upon a man as being righteous while he's still ungodly. For we must realize that Paul hated ungodliness in himself, as every believer must hate it. And even though he had been established by faith in a divine righteousness which satisfies God because it is his own righteousness, Paul knew that he must grow in practical righteousness. No one was ever saved by anything he did himself. No one was ever saved by keeping the commandments or by trying to live up to the Sermon on the Mount. But vast numbers of people have been lost through trying to do these things. Now this great truth of justification is the foundation of any intelligent understanding of the gospel. Yet multitudes take the attitude that they are still able to do something for themselves. If you think that you can get into heaven on the basis of something that you do, or of something that you do not do, then I declare with all the authority of the word of God, you must produce a holiness that is the equal of God's. Nothing less than this is acceptable to him. In the Old Testament, the law was given with a constant reiteration of the demand, Be ye holy, for I am holy. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus presented this standard again, Be ye therefore perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Never forget, there are only two ways for a man to get into heaven. One, you produce a holiness that is the equal of God. Be as perfect as God. Then when you die, you can brush aside any guardian at the gate of heaven. You can stalk up to the throne of God and command him as an equal. Move over, God, and let me sit down on the throne. There are now two of us. Now, if you can't do this, and you know you can't. If you know that sin has come into your life, and you know it has, then the second way to heaven is open. You can come as a bankrupt sinner and throw yourself on the grace of God to be accepted because of Jesus Christ. This second way is the only way that succeeds. To think that the law was given as a standard by which we are to live is folly, folly, folly. The law was given as a sword to slay us in order that God may raise us from the dead 
by the gospel of free grace. We must get away from the idea that we're to do the best we can and that the Lord will make up what is lacking. Instead, Isaiah tells us, all, and note that word all, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Paul echoes this when he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short. Mark the word, come short. Come short of the glory of God. Nevertheless, we can rejoice. For Paul tells us in the next verse that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Thank God. And our Father, we pray thee that thou shalt teach this lesson to each heart. Cleanse us from the desire of a do-it-yourself religion. Keep us from thinking that it is possible for us to do anything that could perfectly satisfy thy divine demand. Keep us humble, make us humble, and bring us to the place where we rest in Christ as we give thee the glory through him. Amen. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We ask thee that in this hour thou shalt effectively work in us, that from the going forth of the message from my heart and through my voice and into the microphones and all the way through to the broadcast reception in the hearts of the ones that listen, that thou shalt bless every part of this so that thy people in this day may have spiritual food and grow in thy truth. May each one who listens say, O oh God, give me something from this food that is spread before me. And bless the work we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. In our study last week, we saw the meaning of justification as set forth in Paul's great rebuke of Peter, which continues to the end of chapter 2 of Galatians. And we continue now with Galatians chapter 2 and verse 17 in our rapid survey of the meaning of this great epistle. We read, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. You see, even after God has declared him to be righteous in Christ, every believer is very much aware that he's still a sinner. If we say that God sees us as justified and as already clothed in divine righteousness, do we make Christ an abettor of sin? Oh, don't let such a thought enter your mind. The only proof that salvation by grace alone is the one true way to righteousness is to live in that faith and experience divine growth produced by the Holy Spirit. Now continue in verses 18 and 19. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. Now any man who is honest with himself knows that this is true. If we set up any kind of law, either the Mosaic law or some code of our own, we can never keep it. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul is even more explicit. So if through your faith in Christ you are dead to the principles of this world's life, why, as if you were still part and parcel of this worldwide system, do you take the slightest notice of these purely human prohibitions? Don't touch this, don't taste that, or don't handle the other. This, that, and the other will all pass away after you. Oh, I know that these regulations look wise, 
with their self-inspired efforts of worship, their policy of self-humbling, and their studied neglect of the body. But in actual practice, they do honor not to God, but to man's own pride. Now the person who has trusted in Christ has turned away from self in order to be justified by Christ. If then he turns back to the law, he builds again the very thing that condemns him and makes himself a transgressor. Such a practice involves Christ in all his failures. But this is not the truth of Christian life and experience when it's centered in faith in Christ alone. Full commitment to Christ involves every phase of life and being and brings the individual believer into a wholly new concept of living. Now we come to verse 20, a verse often memorized by young Christians without any idea of the context, which brings out its full meaning. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Having turned from the thought of salvation by character, by works, by rites and ceremonies of religion, the believer is cast upon Christ. And this is no mere intellectual experience. It utterly transforms his life. Galatians 2.20 is intended to keep believers from thinking that belief in Christ is a simple thing, that if one announces belief in grace, that that is all that matters. True Christian living involves daily crucifixion. Some individuals want to be saved without being crucified, but they are deceiving themselves. When we receive Christ as Savior, we are not to go on living as we please, tossing a patronizing smile toward a distant Christ and vaguely grateful that he has destroyed hell for us so that we can live pleasantly in the flesh and in the world. Yet, life must be lived in these two terrible places, in the flesh and in the world. But Christian commitment sees the believer as crucified with Christ in the world, but not of it. If there are a thousand ways to kill another man, there can be only 999 ways by which that man could kill himself. For no man can crucify himself. One of the saddest characteristics of our churches is the great number of partly crucified believers. With much show and vainglory, they publicly drive a nail through their feet. With mock humility and public display, they drive a nail through one hand. And then with the free hand, they point to themselves as examples of humility, devotion, surrender, and self-sacrifice. See, I am crucified. I did it myself. But God is not interested in any of this. He accepts only that crucifixion which he himself accomplishes by counting us in Christ. In this verse, Paul sees himself hanging on the cross and then walking away alive while seeing himself still on the cross. To the Colossians he writes, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Now spiritually, that verse belongs in the middle of our text where we read, nevertheless, I live. 
Now, this means that I have a divine awareness that within me there is an entirely new principle. I am now walking in the light. I see truth clearly. I recognize that there is nothing whatsoever in me that can save me or contribute to my salvation. I've turned away from law, religion, rites, ceremonies, and self as factors in my salvation. I am dead to all those things. God has put self and its effort on the cross, and he must keep me there day by day throughout my earthly life. Whenever we become aware that the old self is rising, we must look away to Calvary and see ourselves dying there with Christ. Then we must look to the open tomb and see ourselves coming forth in newness of life. Crucifixion with Christ includes many things. First, of course, I participate in all the benefits of his death. My sins are cleansed and I stand forgiven. I am free from the law and all its claims. I now have an intense supernatural desire to possess the holiness of Christ that I may not sin again. Second, I enter into the knowledge of Christ and I enjoy fellowship with him. My heart cries out that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. His will, not mine, governs all my choices. And then in the third place, I enter into his deep love for all the church, and I become willing to complete that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ by being willing to suffer for others. Only as we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to become our life can we know relief from defeat. Sin may still touch us, grieve us deeply, and cause us to yearn for that state of holiness when sin shall be no more. But at the same time, we know beyond question that we are on an upward road. We know without possibility of error that he who has begun the good work in us will keep on perfecting it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we realize that all this is because he is within strengthening our faith, giving us his own faith. And all this is based on the fact that he loved us and that he loves us now. Oh, how personal this becomes. He loved me and gave himself for me. And now in the next verse, Paul winds up his charge against Peter, made before all the church, with the last verse of Galatians 2. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The New Revision translates this verse, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. Now it is of utmost importance that we understand Paul's use of this Greek word translated righteousness or justification. Because justification is far more than mere forgiveness. The law may pardon a criminal, but henceforth that man would be only a pardoned criminal. He would never be a justified person. But in justification, God does not deal with part of a man's life and leave him to continue by his own effort. God justifies a man in the totality of his existence, from birth to death. 
in justification. God does not accept the best a man can do and finish by completing that which is lacking. God justifies a man in the totality of his being. He gives him an absolutely new life in Christ. And that life is God's own life. And the righteousness is God's own righteousness. When you look through yellow glass, everything is yellow. Look through blue glass and everything is blue. When you look through red glass, everything is red. And when God looks at us through Jesus Christ, he sees us in the righteousness, the color of Christ. We are seen by God because of Christ. We are seen by God to be just as holy as Christ, just as righteous as Christ. Now, Christ had to die because such a system of justification could not be established in any other way. If such righteousness, such justification had come by the law, it would not have been necessary for Christ to die. He would have died to no purpose. Oh, but I thank God that he died for a true purpose. And you and I are part of that purpose. Through him and him alone, we are justified. Now, having completed his rebuke of Peter, the apostle addresses himself in chapter 3 to the entire Galatian church and to all the foolish, bewitched people of Christendom throughout the centuries who believe that legalism and good works are necessary to salvation. In Galatians chapter 3, in the first four verses, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? Now we must understand this as applying to us. I often say when I'm using this in a lecture in some other city, O foolish Americans, who hath bewitched you? And if it were in Canada, I'd say, O foolish Canadians, who hath bewitched you? And in any other part of the world, it would be the same. God is speaking this to us. You see, to believe in rules for the Christian life is to be foolish, bewitched, and disobedient to the truth. The Ten Commandments, ritual observance, and the ethical precepts of the Sermon on the Mount do exist, but not as rules to live by. Rather, they are standards which God has given to show that we have all sinned and come short of his glory. Seeing his standards, we recognize that we cannot satisfy God by anything in ourselves or by our efforts. And so we turn away from self and all religion of form and ceremony and we come to Jesus Christ as bankrupt so that we may be saved by him alone. We have to come saying, I am nothing, I have nothing, I could be nothing, I could do nothing that could satisfy thee. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now, every believer in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord must be aware that he is the object of a great love, that he could never have found his way to God by himself. God's Holy Spirit sought us in order to bring us to Jesus Christ, who bought us and bound us in order to present us to God the Father. We began thus in the Spirit. How foolish to think 
that we could do anything for ourselves. God brought us to himself through the preaching of his word by means of the faith which he put within us. What folly to believe that salvation begins by faith but is maintained by work. What folly to think that God saves us but that we must keep ourselves saved. Such folly creates a picture of God as a great and formidable magistrate who has shown a little love by saving us, but who now mounts guard over us, ready to flick us into hell if we get too close to the edge of one of his prohibitions. Such is a caricature of God, who is all love and all grace to his own. To embrace the idea of salvation by grace plus some sort of work is to lower God to the category of a woman who smiles at a man and then expects pay for her favors. God is not a salvation merchant. Love does not sell. Love does not bargain. Love gives. Now, the fourth verse of Galatians 3 is much better in the New Revised Standard Version. Did you experience so many things in vain, if it really is in vain? Paul is not talking about suffering in the sense of submission or endurance. He's talking about the wonders of the Christian life and the joys which the Galatians experienced when first they knew the Lord. For believers who lived before the New Testament was written had many experiences which God does not give to the Christian today, since we have the complete Bible. So Paul is speaking of the supernatural ministry which the Galatians experienced. He said, He therefore that ministers to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? In other words, he's describing not the condition in the last half of the 20th century, but the last half of the first century, when the Bible was not yet complete. He, God the Father, who supplies the Holy Spirit to you, and does mighty works in you, does he do it by any principle of law, or by the hearing of faith? The two words translated worketh miracles are the Greek words which give us our English words energy and dynamite. Are we to expect such miracles today. Now, I do not question that God can do anything, or that he frequently intervenes in our lives to perform wonderful deeds for us and in us. But we must never forget that we live in a time that is very different from the early days of the church. Write down the number of this year, and then remove the figure 19. What you have left is the time in which the New Testament was being written. 1900 years ago, there was no complete New Testament. A disciple was accredited by the works which God did through him. Today, a man is accredited by his faithfulness to the word of God in his teaching and by the fruit of the Spirit in his life. Thus, we do not appeal to miracles as proof of truth, for Satan can perform miracles. But Satan cannot counterfeit the word of God, nor can he duplicate the fruit of the Spirit. You did not help God to save you, and you cannot help him to sanctify you. Justification by faith. We all believe that. Sanctification by rule? What utter folly. And then Paul cites as an example one of the greatest men of faith in all the Bible. In verses 6 through 9 we read, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
Know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, Indeed shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. The legalists were appealing to Moses as their chief authority for faith and life. Paul takes them back several hundred years before Moses to Abraham. In his letter to the Romans, Paul devotes an entire chapter to showing that Abraham was saved without reference to any law or religious ceremony. Here, he intimates the same thing to the Galatians by demonstrating that there was no intrinsic righteousness in Abraham, Paul shuts the mouths of Abraham's descendants so that they cannot boast in their own righteousness. By showing that Abraham was not saved by works, he proves that Abraham's descendants cannot be saved by works. By proving that religious rites had no part in Abraham's salvation, Paul destroys the teaching that these rites are necessary to the salvation of Abraham's children. To the Romans, Paul demonstrates that God called Abraham, blessed him, gave him promises, and announced that he was righteous. All this was long before Abraham was commanded to establish the right of circumcision, and therefore circumcision had no part in Abraham's salvation. Circumcision was but the seal of the Mosaic law. It had nothing to do with salvation by grace through faith. God told Abraham to leave home and country and go out to a place that God would later give him for an inheritance. And Abraham believed God without any visible evidence. And his faith was counted to him instead of the righteousness which he did not possess in himself. Anyone who believes God's unsupported word about Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising again for our justification is counted as a child of faith and thereby as a child of Abraham. Now since God's plan has always been the same, the Old Testament scriptures bear abundant witness to that which God planned to do for the Gentiles as well as for the physical descendants of Abraham. This is why God said to Abraham, In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God knew that he was going to save Gentiles as well as Jews, but he was going to do it through Jesus Christ. And this is why God told Abraham about the great outreach of blessing that would come to the world through him, Abraham. God was going to save the nations through Abraham. This is the gospel. It is available to us today. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, made it available to us. The promise to Abraham is being fulfilled for all who believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. Without belief in salvation by character, or salvation by good works, law, rites and ceremonies, salvation by rules and so on, all those who thus believe in faith alone, grace alone, are blessed by God in the same way that he blessed faithful Abraham. And our Father, we pray thee that we may look past all rules and form and ceremony and liturgy and any system of works and commandments and doings, and that we may look away to thee alone and understand the wonders of thy salvation through grace. We ask 
in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.